Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. everyone and welcome back to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host Lori LeBay and if you liked our opening music it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer Speaks Radio we are about sound information not just sound bites we want to have real conversations with real people all around the world voices big and small. So maybe, just maybe, you can be our next guest. I'd love to hear from you. You can just email me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. Now, before I introduce our guest, I'm just going to do a couple of housekeeping things. Um, One is to mention Dementia Map, our global resource directory. We would love to have you um, check this out. We're expanding it every single day. So if you have a service product tool or knowledge base, uh, you can enter it for free. Or we also have some enhanced plans that allow you advertising, blog posts, banner ads, and so much more. So again, go check out uh, DementiaMap.com. And for those of you that are looking to be part of a research trial, now you can join an important Alzheimer's disease research in just minutes from your home with Picnic Health. So go to PicnicHealth.com forward slash speaks to sign up and get $25 just for signing up. Picnic Health collects and digitizes all of your medical records into one online account. And you can share that anonymized data from your records with medical researchers. And by examining this real world data from medical records, the researchers can find answers that they couldn't find in normal clinical trials. Now, I also want to mention a couple of events. Plymouth International has one more session in their virtual dementia conference, which is challenging and finding solutions to this world we're living in COVID. And that is November 10th. Also, Arthur's Senior Care continues to sponsor our Arthur's Memory Cafe, which is held the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. Central. So that's two o'clock Eastern. It's virtual. So anybody can attend. And then Brookdale North Oaks is sponsoring our Caregiver Connect support group, which meets in person for people caring for a loved one with dementia at 10 a.m., the last Wednesday of each month. And that is held at the Shoreview Community Center. So go ahead and check those out. You can always reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com for more information. We are going to hear from the Footbar Walker, and we're going to be right back. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle? 
struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. Okay, it is now time to introduce you to our guest today, who is a very good friend of mine, and I'm just thrilled to have him with us. Alan Caspi holds his PhD, and he is a gerontologist and a dementia behavior specialist. And now he is the author of the brand new book, Understanding and Preventing Harmful Interactions Between Residents with Dementia. And he currently works as an assistant research professor at the University of Connecticut. Alan's applied research focuses on improving and understanding the prevention of various forms of elder mistreatment in long-term care homes. Some examples are um, like injury and deadly neglect, fatal resident-to-resident incidents, financial exploitation, and theft of opioid pain medication. In Alan's free time, he enjoys carving wood, including a brain hemisphere, which was just magnificent, and educational signs such as See Me, Not My Dementia, and Justice for Elders. So please help me welcome Alan Caspi to the show. Well, Alan, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Your book has been in the making for a long time, I know, and I know that that is um, just a huge piece. And so I'm so proud of the work that you've put into to come to this space. I You know, I haven't written a book myself, but I've heard from other authors what it takes. And like I said, I am so excited for you to get your work out into the world in this format. So first of all, thank you for taking the time to be with us. And second, before I get into my line of questions, I always like to ask everybody to share if they've been personally touched (laughs) by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. It just kind of gives our audience a little base. Sure. So first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me to to talk about this book project. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, I will say that if you know somebody who wants to write a book, um, 10 chapters uh, on her own or his own, uh, send them to me first and I'm going to talk them out of it or uh, they'll have a better sense of what they're getting into because I certainly have a humble appreciation of what it takes um, after several years in the making. Um, so with that, uh, of course, I'm, I'm thrilled that the book is out and um, we're gonna talk about it in a minute. Um, the combination of 13 years of work specifically on this uh, phenomenon. But um, just to answer your question, um, both of my grandmothers, lived with dementia uh, in the final years of their lives. Um, So that's how I first learned about cognitive disability uh, in my family. And um, so that's that's the the initial connection, uh, the personal connection with with, uh, dementia. Okay. 
Well, I, I want you to share with us kind of what led you to write your book, which is entitled mm-hmm. Understanding and Preventing Harmful Interactions Between Residents with Dementia. There must have been a trigger point that said, okay, I'm going to go down this path. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. So um, while I worked as a nurse aide uh, 27 years ago in a nursing home where my grandfather lived in Israel, um, I noticed those um, uh, interactions uh, between residents uh, with and without dementia. Uh, later on, I also um, saw those uh, interactions um, when I worked in a nursing home as a social worker uh, in the city of Jaffa in Israel with elders who are with low income, many of whom with dementia. Uh, but it was really, uh, years later, uh, in 2007 and 2008, uh, nearby Boston, uh, where, when I did my doctoral dissertation study in two secure dementia care homes, uh, and, where I conducted a, the equivalent of a one year of direct observations uh, on the lived experience of people living with dementia in those, in those care homes at all stages of the disease. And um, when I, what I noticed is that these uh, episodes uh, occurred on a daily basis and they caused a lot of um, frustration, distress, uh, fear, um, and uh, also that many of them were uh, risky for the um, for the safety of these um, uh, vulnerable, many of whom frail, physically frail individuals with dementia. So, um, when you see this phenomenon occurring on a daily basis and the impact that it made on residents and staff and family members. Um, it leaves an impression on you. And I decided to um, focus on this phenomenon in a more meaningful and structured way during the study itself. And then in the years uh, since then till today. Um, and um, I have to say that it was quite a journey. It was very, I learned a lot. I, le- I still learn a lot every day about this phenomenon. I do not have all the answers. Uh, every time there's an injurious or deadly incident, I'm learning something new. Um, but I'm just thrilled that I have opportunity to share what I learned uh, with um, care providers, whether it's nursing home, assisted livings, direct care staff, nurses, social workers, and administrators, uh, how to um, address these uh, episodes, how to prevent them and enable the residents to realize their right to remain uh, safe uh, in their care homes. Can you give us an idea, you know, when we talk about understanding and preventing harmful interactions, can you give us maybe um, a, just a, a couple <clears throat> of examples from everyday to extreme so people know what we're talking about here? That's an excellent question. So first thing I would say is that the spectrum uh, of severity of these episodes is anywhere from mild to uh, 
you know, dangerous. Uh, but by dangerous, I mean it could be physically injurious um, and also fatal. Uh, so, um, you know, when you look at the common circumstances surrounding those episodes, uh, some of the common ways in which they uh, take place have to do with um, the fact that it is often the case that a large number of uh, elders with dementia share a small living space. Uh, I'm talking about public space, but also uh, bedrooms. There's a lot of people who share a bedroom with a roommate. And not only that, they share a bathroom. And so, and they have a, a serious brain disease, a cognitive disability. Um, and many of those settings are secure. And so um, there's a lot of uh, possibilities uh, for invasion of personal space uh, anywhere in the care home. And, um, or, and also what I call unwanted entries into bedrooms and bathrooms. And so it is easy to forget that this is their home and that their bedroom is their last frontier of privacy. Uh, but for some reason, you know, historically we, we, we know the reasons, um, we have two, three, sometimes four people sharing a bedroom uh, and, and several residents may share a bathroom that is adjacent to their uh, bedroom from two bedrooms sometimes. Um, and so um, there's a lot, so there's a lot of invasion of personal space, there's unwanted entries into bedrooms and bathrooms. And then there's a, a lot of um, situations where um, residents may, uh, with dementia, will get into a situation where there's a simple misunderstanding, uh, interpersonal stressors and frustrations that uh, when staff are understaffed, you know, uh, first I should say that care staff, the vast majority are caring and loving and dedicated and hardworking and underappreciated and undertrained, and, and they're overworked and they're busy. And many times they may be in a different part of the care home, uh, not in a position to detect the early warning signs. And so they may be providing personal care inside the bedroom when two residents are fighting over the remote control in the, in the TV lounge uh, or in the dining room. And so there's a lot of opportunities for these episodes to occur. Um, and all you need is literally one push. Because if you would push me, I might be able to, I may fall down, I might be able to block the impact with the floor. But when you are an 85 year old uh, uh, person with dementia, or we know our higher uh, risk of falls before this phenomena, before talking about this phenomena, with a walker or without, they often fall and they break their hip or they, they have a, a brain trauma uh, and then their condition deteriorates their physical, medical condition, and then there's medical complications, and uh, they may not recover from that. So um, these are some of the circumstances that um, often occur in, in care homes. 
uh, whether it's nursing home or assisted living residences. You know, you really made me think, you know, when my mom first moved to the nursing home, she was in a bedroom with four. And I'll never forget one episode where the, one of her roommates was in the bathroom and she uh, was having some issues in there and the, the whole room stuck. I mean, it was horrible, but my mom had no filters at this time. And so my mom was just screaming at this woman, which was totally not her previous character behavior. But when you were talking about that, I just thought about even the design of the building, how dumb to have the bathroom right by the door. So if someone is making noises or having, having odors, everyone who goes back and forth instead of putting it in the back of the room, I mean, just and everyone's bathroom etiquette is different. You know, some people can sit in there with the door open and it doesn't bother them. Um, so when you were talking about the privacy and, and even the clickers and, and all of those types of things, it's like, oh my gosh, there's such a wide range of where everybody is coming from with etiquette in private space. And I think so often we just think, well, it's no big deal. It's kind of dorm style and everyone will adjust. Well, they can't, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they don't have that capability. So thank you for pointing those, those examples out. I, can I, can I give an example actually from Dr. L power? Sure. Uh, so he gives this wonderful, wonderful example that, you know, kind of brings home the message of how as a society we're even accepting those um, living arrangements, right? So talking about dignity and safety. So he gives the example of imagine that tonight, 9 p.m., you're sitting in your home, somebody knocks on your door, you open the door, you don't know this person, the person doesn't say a word, the person walks with a mattress into your home, walks to your bedroom, puts the, the, the mattress on the floor next to your bed and tells you, I'm going to live here um, until the rest of our lives, you know, until one of us moves on. Um, for some reason, we somehow learn to accept that it's okay to have two, three, four people together in the same room. Now I have to qualify that because there are people who enjoy having a roommate, the companionship, the emotional support, residents in early stage of dementia, very attentive and compassionate and, and frankly helpful in circumstances where staff are busy. They may alert staff to a need, a medical need. Uh, so they may press the button and it could save lives. So we need to, to use a balanced approach. And I don't want to go too much into solutions at this point. We, we'll talk about it later. But I think that we need to take a step back and, um, and think about what is, what could, what's the vision for the dignified and safe living. And I think the pandemic not only the injuries that occur between the, the, the psychological harm and, and physical injuries and fatality that occur between roommates and, and those unwanted entries to bedroom and bathrooms, but also the pandemic with the, with the devastating 
humanitarian crisis of over 160,000 people dead in nursing homes, only nursing homes before even talking about assisted living in the United States, and it's probably more because it's underreported. Um, and infections, the risk of infection between roommates. So this is our historic moment. This is our opportunity to unlearn, to really rethink about the physical environment and what could provide dignity and safety and also in the context of infection control and prevention. Even prior to the pandemic, um, there are staggering estimates of the number of elders who died due to infection in nursing homes prior to the pandemic. So I think that's, that's our moment. This is the time when we really need a reform of the physical environment to make them truly elder-friendly and dementia-friendly uh, for this population. Yeah. Well, when you talk about infections, I think of the hospital too, you know, it, it, the, the transmission of infection is huge. So let's talk about some of the misconceptions of, of what people think they're getting into and then what, what are some of the realities? Right. So when you look at the uh, popular media um, or if you even look in research studies or even policies and regulations, the language, the words that are being used to describe this phenomenon um, is, you know, I'll, I'll give you the terms and then I'll, I'll, I'll share my thoughts about it. You know, the, common, the most common terms are resident resident aggression, resident resident abuse, resident resident violence, and resident resident elder mistreatment. Um, these are terms that for the most part, are uh, inaccurate, labeling, stigmatizing, and they're very unhelpful. In fact, they're harmful. Um, I'm not here to say that there are no residents with or without dementia that are, that are that they, I would say this way, there are residents that are aggressive. There are residents that are violent. Um, there are residents that are abusive. There are, there are people with lifelong violent tendencies uh, that may exacerbate or change in some way when they develop dementia or after they move to a care home. But the vast majority of people with dementia are not aggressive. They are not violent. They are not abusive. And they are not trying to mistreat another individual. They're not waking up in the morning uh, with the thought, okay, how I can harm or injure or kill another resident. Um, there are exceptions, rare, rare exceptions in the very, very, very early stages of cognitive impairment. Um, so the reason why words are so important is because once we label a resident with dementia as abusive or violent or aggressive, we are much less in a position to see the human needs the frustrations uh, that, under, that, that most often underlie these uh, episodes. And, and then the slippery slope for antipsychotic medication starts. And when you are sedating a person with dementia, um, then it is really hard to identify the unmet human needs. So they are actually giving us a gift. And they actually try, we, our job is to detect 
to decode what the what's the meaning, what's the underlying meaning of those uh, behavioral expressions. Um, I'm going to pause here, and we can talk about what words we can use if you want, but or if you had a follow up question about that. Well. I think it's really important about the terms and the labeling, because one of the other things that you didn't mention that I think a lot of times families don't know is once somebody gets labeled aggressive, abusive, it's hard to even find a place to place them. Everybody's door shuts because of liability. And, you know, they're not, they're not ready to take that on. And and, I mean, it could be a, a once in a lifetime, you know, situation, but it's kind of like if your kid gets labeled in school with something, it's written in that record and, and every teacher that has those expectations. And, you know, so we do have to really be careful. I would love to um, hear what you think are some alternative, you know, verbiage that we can use because, uh, you know, the whole anti-psych uh, psych drug thing it scares me in a lot of ways because I've seen it used and kind of abused in situations, not all cases. Some people really do need that and, and stuff, but it, it is a very easy fix, especially, you know, um, if there's a problem and there's staff shortage, you know, it's, it's drug them. And, and people have seen that throughout their lives in different situations. But in, in this case, I, I think it complicates things so much and it confuses what is actually going on and then trying to level them off you know they end up in a jerry psych ward and they have to be pulled off and that's time consuming we don't have enough of those i mean the list goes on and on and on with things like that so i'd love to hear you know what your thoughts are first of what can we do better in terms of our verbiage and how we frame things mm-hmm. Well, so first thing I would say is that uh, language is evolving, and that's a good thing. So what I would say now, in two or three or five years, may not be um, um, meeting the expectations then. And that's a good thing. Um, I myself evolved with my language, with my words that I'm using. Um, And I would say that, um, you know, there are people... Uh, and professionals and Dr. L. Power, and I totally agree. You know, they would say, we're not using the words aggressive behaviors in the context of people with dementia. Uh, And I totally agree. I was trying to avoid that word aggression in my book so hard (laughs) and work around it in so many ways. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And but I did I did my 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 best effort to avoid these these terms. But some people would say, some professionals and leading thinkers would say, why even use the words behaviors, right? Um, when was the, when was the, when was there, or there was a time when we used the words, the word behavior in a positive context, right? When you, when you hear, when someone hears the word behaviors, it sends a certain message and we're already kind of on guard, there's behaviors, Okay. And we need to control and manage them, right? Um, and we're missing the person. And we're missing the lived experience. And we're missing the frustration. And we're missing their, their desperate effort to tell us that something is bothering them, upsetting them, frustrating them, or frightening them, frankly. So 
you know, that said, you need to strike a balance because if we're not going to use any word, then people won't know what we're talking about, right? So if I would say, these are just human expressions. Well, somebody would come back and say, well, human expressions could be other things entirely. So we don't know what you're talking about. Tell us what you're talking about. So it's always striking a balance, right? But I would say this. I would say, describe what you see in a non-judgmental way, in the most neutral way possible, without labeling, without stigmatizing, without preconceived notions. So if somebody punches another, if a resident punches another resident in the face, you you say you write or you say that there was a punch. If somebody trips or spits or pushes, you say, you describe what you see. You don't add the labeling piece because if you do, it will prevent you from identifying the, the patterns. And the patterns over time are the foundation for prevention. This is where the insights come from. So if you identify, what do I mean by patterns? It could be uh, temporal in terms of time. It could be spatial in terms of exact location. It could be people, events, and objects. And when you look closely, as I've done for, you know, many, for for a very long time, um, when you look closely, you will see and you will focus on the, uh, on the interaction, not on the aggression or, or abuse or violence, you will be able in 95% of the time, you will be able to identify um, over time when you identify the pattern, the unmet human need that is there. And, and most oftentimes, it's an emotional need. It's a psychological need. It's a social need. And then there's also situations of medical conditions that can contribute to those episodes. So... I, my, my, that's why I call it in the title of the book, I call it interactions. I was steering away from those labeling terms because when we use the word interactions, we have a precious opportunity to really decode and, and truly understand what is actually going on there. So we're in a much better position to anticipate and proactively prevent those episodes. Well, I, I so agree with you. And I remember having um, our mutual friend on uh, Gert Benninger, who wrote the book Moving On by Standing Still, that talks about behaviors and what a negative term that is and how frequently we use it. And again, it's it's always negative. You don't get a pat on the back for that was a wonderful behavior. No, that would that was a wonderful skill. <laughs> you know, and 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 really, you know, breaking this down, going. These are, these are clues for us when something is going wrong, something they're not able to communicate it. And this is how they're, they're going about it. You know, looking, you know, getting people to look kind of at Maslow's theory at the, at the very core of what, what are the needs? What are those human needs that aren't being met? And we're the ones that are supposed to be cognitively clear and capable. So it's up to us to decipher the code so I love the term interaction because that can be positive negative you know neutral whatever and and one of the people who did it the best in the country is Judy Berry and you know Judy well and when she used to be 
at Lakeview Ranch, uh, Minnesota, the two uh, dementia specialized care homes. Uh, and she would actually um, admit a lot of people who were labeled in other long-term care settings as aggressive. And um, she demonstrated not only in practice, but also in research that you are able to uh, provide dignified care and enable people to thrive with dementia despite the cognitive disability, when you have the right philosophy, the right approach, the right staffing level, the robust training that never ends, and the, um, when you have the resources on the ground to, to provide um, the care uh, that proactively identifies the human needs, uh, because it's much easier to prevent those episodes than, than to de-escalate them at times. Um, so I, I just had to mention Judy Berry for her, the tremendous work that she's done in this space. Uh, and she taught us a lot. And so she deserves a lot of credit. Yep. No, I agree. Um, amazing community she had, she had built and her, you know, training program in terms of, you know, shifting the perception of what's really going on here and in, in putting a magnifying glass on and going, this doesn't have to be as scary as we think it is. Right. You know, when we, when we label people, you know, especially over time, they start believing we were, they are what we're projecting them to be. You know, they're going to live up to that standard, just like our, our kids and teenagers and spouses and partners and friends do. So, um, you know, we all know that, but we have to, we have to really be conscious of, of what our interactions are and, you know, what is our goal? Uh, a lot of times no one's thinking forward in terms of, are we, are we really aligning with our mission here or is it just an easy fix? Absolutely. And, and too often that happens. What are some of the um, most common episodes that you see your causes for episodes? You talked about personal space, which I think is is super important. And I, again, I think it's something we just all take for granted. And when someone is placed, oh, they'll adjust. It might take them two or three months, but they'll just, they'll just adjust. But, but there's no really counseling or monitoring of triggers or, you know, it's not just, it, it isn't discussed usually um, that, that I'm aware of in most places, even when someone's being admitted to a community I don't see families asking those questions about personal space and what's important to them. You know, what kind of food do they like? You know, they might ask. Um, but a lot of times it's, it's not even little things like, you know, when, when do they take a shower or do they prefer a bath or, or frequency? And I know those are big issues uh, that, can, that can trigger, um, you know, reactions that we don't like, <laughs> that we don't want. So in terms of the in terms of the of the causes, you know, the, you you need to really look at it in at multiple levels. Okay, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the situational frustrations and the triggers, um, but there's much higher level um, conditions that uh, enable these episodes to occur. Um, when you look at the, you know. The organization, we can also look outside the long-term care home, okay? Uh, what resources long-term care homes 
uh, have to provide safe care in general before even talking about this phenomenon. Uh, but if we're inside the long-term care home, um, you know, one of the things that you want to look at is, again, is the physical environment. You know, uh, the difference between a large-scale care home and a small living environment, small-scale living environment. Uh, we talk about, a, you know, elder-friendly and dementia-friendly versus not. We can go into detail about that or um, but then there's the staffing levels. And what I actually don't like that term, but I, I, I like the term people-to-people uh, ratios because um, these are people giving care to people. And if the needs of the people who provide the care are not met, the people who receive the care, their needs won't be met as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, people don't know, but... If, um, this was prior to the pandemic. It's probably worse now. Half of nursing homes in America were found in dozens of research studies to be understaffed and one quarter to be dangerously understaffed. That means that as, as we speak, it's probably worse. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people in nursing homes uh, receive care in, 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 under conditions of dangerous staffing levels that literally put their lives at risk for various reasons, let alone, you know, even before speaking about this phenomenon. So the inability to be present and to provide that supervision and to provide that proactive connection and presence with people with dementia who desperately need it to be able to express and, and, and meet their needs. So staffing levels is, is, is a huge, huge issue. And then is the specialized training. Uh, a lot of staff members do not have specialized dementia care training uh, in general. And uh, I would, it's probably the case that the, the majority don't have specialized training specifically for this phenomenon. So that's another piece. Um, this should be orientation, in-service training, and then uh, on the floor as it happens by uh, managers who are qualified and experienced and skilled. And um, the other piece is, is nursing leadership. You know, you'll come in the evening and there's no managers. <laughs> you come in the weekend and, you know, there may be a manager, uh, they're floating between care home. Staff need the support, emotional support, the guidance, um, and the experience, what we call experiential learning. So that's another piece there. Um, and I would even take it a step back. One of the, uh, the highest level is literally uh, the ageist perceptions that we have in our society and the dementist uh, perceptions in our society. What value do we have for elders in our society and for people living with a cognitive disability? Um, and would we accept those um, psychologically harmful, psychologically harmful in physically injurious and deadly incidents in childcare settings. Um, so, you know, uh, would we put, you know, um, you know, we talked about having two, three, four residents with dementia in the same room, same bathroom. So, going back to the to the basics, um, what I call dangerous normalization. We have been normalized. We have somehow accepted over decades 
that that's just what it is. And we're just going to leave from one scandal in nursing home to another or in assisted living. And that's just what it is. Um, and it's wrong. And it's, uh, and uh, my, my hope is that the pandemic will create the conditions and awareness uh, for a true reform in long-term care homes, even um, with and without regards to this uh, phenomenon. You know, other reasons have to do with the fact that this phenomenon is not being tracked by CMS. Um, um, so when CMS officials themselves uh, uh, recognize publicly that resident rest incidents are more common than staff abuse of residents. Um, so um, if you don't track it, it for all practical purposes, it doesn't exist and you're not in a position to learn from those incidents and develop policies, procedures and practices to prevent these incidents. And I can go on, but maybe that's that's plenty for for that for this point. Well, what I wanted you just to, um, because a lot of times we talk in acronyms and, and a lot of our audience might not even know what CMS stands for. Thank you. you. Right. So I live in that world. So it's the center, the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. And uh, CMS oversees um, nursing homes across the country through uh, uh, what is called state survey agencies. So each state has a state survey agency that oversees uh, the the federal nursing home regulations um, that CMS uh, uh, has. And... um, so that's that's kind of the from the regulatory oversight enforcement um, aspect of things, uh, and what happens is that when these incidents occur, and if they violate uh, one of the federal nursing home regulations, they may, the state surveyor may uh, substantiate the uh, allegation, and they may issue a citation. Uh, but the problem is that then there's a, and they, they spend many hours to conduct the investigations and to, or the standard surveys. Uh, and then there's an investigation report. And there are thousands of those reports that are sitting uh, at state survey agencies and, and CMS. Um, and they're under broad categories of abuse uh, or accident or several other was called FTAG, State Survey Deficiency Citations. And um, I'm not aware that many people are looking at those investigation reports. If you had one FTAG or sub FTAG, we would in one click be able to, to pull together thousands of those investigation reports specifically on this phenomenon and be able to be in a position to learn from those incidents to inform prevention on a large scale. Instead, they are buried into in those investigation reports and they're just uh, gaining dust and we're not learning. So this is a huge missed opportunity uh, at a time where CMS is aspiring for more efficiency in oversight and prevention and enforcement. Right, I, I have lots of comments on what you said. I, you know, when you were talking about uh, staff ratios and said, you know, look at it people to people. I think one of the things that people don't understand is the importance and the impact that um, employees have that might not be dementia specific um, from the front desk to housekeeping, to maintenance, to laundry, uh, to food service. These are people who don't have to interact, but choose to interact. 
and they're having real conversations. And I have seen, uh, they just adore a lot of these people because they see them as a person and they're having real conversations with them. Uh, and I think most families will see, uh, depending on you know what level someone's living at, but like a um, life enrichment or activities person, they see them as really dealing with them on a person to person level and having fun and being engaging. But somebody, and again, this, um, you can't just put pigeonhole everybody in there, but like, let's say somebody giving meds, a lot of times they're handing off a med looking for their next person because of the time crunch. And so, and some do a really nice job in terms of interacting, but what an interaction really is or means or feels like to somebody, I think, I think we really overlook. Just those I think this is a, I'm so glad you brought it up uh, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is um, because, and I write about it in the book uh, extensively, if somebody would ask me, what are the three most important uh, words um, in long-term care homes? If you want to provide dignified, uh, safe care and to enable residents with dementia to thrive, the three words are close, trusting relationships. So, um, and that's where everything starts and ends. And some of the most enlightened care homes in the world, in fact, there's one in Australia, and um, uh, I believe you, you know, um, uh, I hope I pronounce her name well, uh, Daniela Greenwood. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. You may have moved from that care setting, uh, Helensville, I forget. Yeah, she's she's independent now. Right, but, but, but she talked about the number one item on our mission statement is, is close trusting relationships. And, when you, and, and, and when, you, when you work very hard to build it and nurture it, uh, you are in a big position to provide dignified, uh, safe care and to enable people to thrive emotionally, psychologically, socially, spiritually. And when you don't have it, or and it's also easy to damage the trust in, in one in one interaction, you can destroy the trust, you know. Uh, so um, when you don't have it, it opens the door for a whole host of, of care related problems, including this phenomenon. But, but going back to, and that also has to do with knowing the life history, you know, to the, to the, to the fullest possible and finding those gems from, throughout the life, even from young, from childhood and young adulthood that can enable you to decipher and decode um, those human expressions in the here and now that are often being taken out of context. But to your point, you know, uh, what we call the non-direct care stuff, but oftentimes the housekeeping, the maintenance, the dietary, the you know people who work in the kitchen, the people at the front desk, many times they interact with residents with dementia and they need to be uh, trained uh, to the fullest possible, uh, not only orientation, but on an ongoing basis because many times staff are busy doing something else and it's the maintenance person or the housekeeping who is actually interacting with them or have to actually running into an episode between roommates and it takes time to get another staff member they need to do something beyond alerting the staff immediately there was a a a very tragic case in canada in a nursing home near toronto many years ago there's a whole inquest about it a big investigatory report 
uh, uh, trying to understand what happened there, uh, where a resident was admitted uh, on a Saturday at noon. And at 7 p.m., two of his roommates uh, were, were dead. Uh, he uh, injured them severely and they died. He managed to cross the hallway and starting to um, attack another resident in his 90s, I believe. And it was a housekeeping uh, personnel that happened to be there that managed to defuse, to de-escalate it, uh, possibly saving the life of that third individual. And then when the, the inquest uh, dwelled into the details, um, this admission should have never happened. Should have never happened in general, should have never happened on a weekend. And, and there was a history uh, for this individual that should have been, uh, you know, the admission team should have looked very carefully into, uh, and he should have never been admitted. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, uh, whether it's a manager, owner, or administrator would say, oh, if, if we would have known the background of this individual, we would have never admitted him after the fact, after the person, another person was injured or died. So yes, these non-direct care staff doing a lot of direct contact. So they're absolutely critical in general, and especially in the context of uh, prevalent understaffing. Uh, so we really need to lift them up, support them, compensate them better, recognize for their efforts. Uh, I remember this frontline uh, I'm sorry, front desk uh, woman uh, who shared the same cultural background with the resident with dementia, who was in advanced stages of dementia. She would engage in those episodes on a regular basis. She and only one other staff member were the only ones who were able to de-escalate those episodes when this uh, resident engaged with those episodes with other residents. Um, when the other staff member that was the only one who was able to to calm her down, was not working on a shift. It was only the, the front desk woman who walked in. The second the resident saw that woman, she immediately calmed down. It was just stunning to see that because she had, there was something they connected at some deep level. They shared a cultural uh, background from a country of origin and the language. And it was just stunning to see that immediate effect immediate positive effect on this resident. Well, and sometimes that outside person can see things too. I remember um, my mom in the nursing home one time, there, there was one oh, just darling little Asian woman. And yet at, at mealtime, she would just cause a ruckus because of what she was perceived to do. So she would go, the staff would go around and they put the napkins and the silverware on top of the napkins and be setting the tables. And she'd go around and she'd grab all the silverware and they would get so angry at her. And so I, I saw that a couple nights in a row and I just thought, Oh, this is just ridiculous. You know? So I, 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 I um, went up to the woman and I, and I said, do you want to go for a walk with me? And so we just went for a walk outside the room. And next thing you know, we're holding hands as we're talking and we come back in and during that in, in her English was very broken but what I got out of her was she was trying to help her family owned a restaurant and she used to roll the silverware. What an easy fix. What an easy fix. to let her feel purposeful. And again, you've got to worry about the infection control and, you know, you can't necessarily use those things, but 
she was trying to help and she was perceived as as really just being this this disruptive monster because they were you know tight on time and everything so um and and i want to say i love your idea about including those kind of outside staff those support staff um, in training i think that is so overlooked and i love the practice that some have and not too many where once a week, or, or even if it's once every couple of weeks, where they have to spend, every staff person has to spend 15 minutes one-on-one with a resident, just to remember why they're there, you know, who's paying their paycheck, and that these are people, and you can have great, you know, a great interaction, even when someone's nonverbal, there's different ways to, to communicate. Um, so uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was you had talked about the, the levels of training, the orientation, the in-service, the on-floor. And I have um, heard of a couple of companies that have really, you know, with, with COVID especially and staff shortages, they were, they were really having trouble with incidents. Um, and they were getting complaints from families on this. And so they decided to hire um, basically what I would call a mentor in motion that was on the floor. They were, they were in a uh, supervisory level, but they were there really just to support and help and guide on a, on a daily basis. That was their whole role. And to me, I thought that was brilliant because staff do need that support. So many of them, they're worried to complain or ask a question because they don't want to lose a job or, you know, but, and they want to learn, but they, they need those outlets. Um, So lots of good information. And then last, um, when you had talked about Daniela Greenwood, one of the things that hit me hard in one of her videos was she said, every person has a right to citizenship. And just because they're living in a community doesn't mean they've lost that. And just in the beauty. And for, for me, I, I learned personally with my own mom. And I think we don't see this um, and really until we're slapped in the face or something significant happens, but we get so task oriented. And this is families and, and um, in communities both. But we get so task oriented, we're not seeing the person anymore. And for me, you know, I had to step back um, one time when I, I snapped at my mom for repeating herself, which is a really common thing for people with dementia to do. And I felt horrible. And I thought, I I have to do this different. And instead of being driven by that to do list, you know, if it's a job description, or, or if it's a family person, um, doing tasks and, and say, I need to reprioritize. And for me, the priorities was, was she safe? Was she happy? Was she pain-free? Mm-hmm. And when I looked at those things first, I, I interacted totally different, mm-hmm. totally, totally different. And it was just a really simple, simple thing to do. But I think so often when we're talking about shifts and changes, everybody thinks it has to be um, so heavy and they, they can't handle it, but we all know it's the little things in life that make the difference. And, you know, you start doing a a lot of those little things and you get more people doing them, they become natural and you add to it 
you know, on a, on a gracious, timely fashion, instead of a lot of times we just slam the hammer down and go, okay, nothing's going to be the same. And, and that's where you get everybody nervous and quitting. And all of a sudden you're, you're starting from scratch with that. So what are, what are some of the main barriers that you see for prevention? Cause I, I do see that whole change and, oh, we can't, you know, we just can't do that. Or my, the saying I hate the most is, well, we've always done it like this, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that one just puts me through the roof, you know? Yeah. I just want to mention something real quick uh, and then try to answer your question. Um, You know, one of the things that uh, came out in three research studies, you had talked about dining room situations and, you know, many, many times it's just this mundane, just, 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 just situation a resident will try to grab food from another or <clears throat> or invade a space of another in the in the dining room or and one of the important messages that I want to kind of share is that is what we started with is that three research studies have shown uh, you know two in the United States and and Canada and Australia shown uh, including mine uh, looked at the circumstances surrounding fatal residentress incidents. So I looked at 105 fatal residentress incidents, and I published an article about it. Um, and strikingly, in in those in the United States, Australia, and and Canada, what was found is that half. When I, I was curious about what was the physical contact in those incidents that led to the injury that ended up in a death. It was what we, what we called push fall incidents. Mm-hmm. But again, we talked about one push is enough. Um, so it goes back to the normalization. So, oh, elders can't harm each other. Look at her, she's, she's so frail. She can't, she can't do anything, right? But all you need is one push, really. Um, their bones are not as strong, you know, they, and their ability to protect themselves is not as uh, robust. And um, so I just wanted to kind of uh, share that finding that it was between 40% to 60%. So one study showed 40%, now one so it shows 60% and 50%. So roughly 50, half of, of fatal residential incidents were found in three research studies to be uh, the, the nature of the physical contact was a push. Pushing somebody away, it's like, get away from me. Okay, like somebody ent- you know, enters the personal space and stays there, and it's somebody in advanced dementia. And the person, say in the early stage, whose space is invaded, uh, he or she may be at first tolerant and understanding, and they would say, you know, I really need my spare, I would like to have my meal right now. This, I don't feel comfortable, but staff are inside bedrooms. And then you see how the emotions build up. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, the resident may reach a breaking point and they may push the person away. And that's all you need. That's all you need. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of uh, make sure that it's in there because to kind of raise awareness of staff members that it doesn't take much uh, for injury and then a, tra- a physical and, and psychological trauma. And then there could be a decline and fatal and, and, and death which could be absolutely devastating and tragic uh, for the person and the family who are often shocked to learn that these incidents even occur. Um, so I just wanted to kind of share that. But you, you have asked about some of the barriers. 
Uh, and I think, you know, um, we touched upon some of them, uh, whether it's uh, what is the value that we have for elders in society at the highest level and for people living with dementia. I think that's where the conversation is to start. We need to um, tackle head on the, the dangerous normalization of these episodes. Uh, you'll have residents themselves internalizing those perceptions saying, oh, we were bitten in elementary school. What do you expect? That's always, the, or nurses would say, well, it happens every shift. Nothing changes. We report, 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 and nothing changes. So this normalization, so this always happened. It happened. It will continue to happen. And I'm saying this is wrong. Uh, this shouldn't happen. You can you can reduce the majority of those episodes and uh, keep uh, not only residents but also staff safer. Uh, so that kind of at the high level. So the barriers uh, is uh, frankly is the decades-long pushback uh, from the long-term care sector with regards to staffing levels. We know it's the number one issue. So that's a barrier there. Um, extreme, extreme lack of, of specialized dementia training, uh, not only nursing home, but assisted living as well. There are ridiculous requirements in many states in assisted living for staff training. And this must change. Um, and so you have the staffing, you have the uh, the training, the nursing leadership is critical uh, to sustain processes, to, to, to make sure policies and practices and procedures are, are adhered and fulfilled. Um, moving, shifting from um, uh, labeling to learning. When I reviewed for uh, 10 months, I reviewed the communication log. There was a lot of labeling there, a lot of labeling language that we spoke about earlier and it was rarely the case that something positive was written. So it's all kind of unbalanced, right? Tell us what works and document it so others will learn from it as well. Um, and um, we need to change the physical environment. It oftentimes contributes. So many times staff members will complain, you know, we can't supervise the residents when there there's long hallways and then there's an L shape. We can't even see them at the end of the hallway. There's there's no way. Or, or, or so the layout needs to be thoughtful. So for a good example is the greenhouse uh, floor plan uh, mm -hmm. in Tupelo, Mississippi. There's a there's a floor plan of the first uh, greenhouse in the United States. Uh, so you have you know ten residents, private rooms, private bedrooms. Uh, there's no nurse station. Uh, it's a, a living space around a hearth, you know, around a, a fireplace. You know, it's the feeling of a home. It doesn't feel and look and smell like a hospital. It feels like a home. Um, and so the ability of staff to supervise residents and detect the early warning signs of distress, anxiety, and frustration is critical uh, because they can see from almost every point, they can see the residents as they move around the space. Okay, so that's that's a huge piece, a real reform in the physical environment of spaces. So, you know, there's there's other issues, but I think um, the I think the bottom line is has to do with, um, you know, with dignity. And that's why I called our document. I'm going to put a plug here, if that's OK, for our documentary film that I did with Judy Berry. And we called it Fighting for Dignity. So if you want to summarize the book in three words, it will be fighting for dignity because people with dementia 
sort of fight with each other, so to speak, in order to preserve their dignity. And when you look at the dictionary definition of dignity, is the state of uh, feeling um, worthy, esteemed, uh, and respected, basically. And when people with dementia feel that their dignity is uh, threatened or at risk, they uh, react, respond uh, with those human expressions, with those behavioral expressions. Um, and, and they're basically giving us uh, an opportunity to understand what underlies it, how we can prevent it. So, so dignity is at the core of this phenomena and the ability to preserve it proact proactively. Yeah. One of the key things that you mentioned was, you know, made them feel, and I think we have to get, that has to be in the core of the mission is making them feel even comfortable to be there, you know, being part of a community and then utilizing all of the senses, you know, it's, it's not just the building layout. It's, it's a lot of different things. And many of these things can be changed very easily. I mean, from noise levels to layout to lighting to color choices to types of furniture that doesn't aggravate or hurt them when they're trying to get in or out. I mean, it's endless what we can analyze. And, and I loved when you mentioned about the charting, noting those things and, and suggesting how do we improve these or um, noting, like I, like I always think when it comes to the quality control reviews, we're not going to shift their perceptions if we can't shift our own, if we can't tell them what's really important to the people we're serving and, and show them the brilliant moments. But instead, we highlight typically all the negatives because we're busy covering our butts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's got to be a balance there. I could talk with you, as you know, all day long. So I, I want to wrap up with asking you if there are main things that you think a care home can can do to reduce any incidences that we haven't discussed so far. Well, I think uh, we kind of did. I think we kind of talked about, um, you know, the, those those big, the big blocks mm -hmm. of, um um, the perception of elders, the, their value, um, the people-to-people, -people, safe people-to-people -people ratios, specialized training, the nursing leadership, the role of the social worker that should be a critical piece there, uh, the training of the uh, robust training of direct and non-direct care staff, uh, awareness of owners. That's another piece I would add there. Not just the administrators, but corporate office, if it's a chain, but owners. Owners need to understand, you know, there was, uh, they understand the risks because nobody wants to have a tragic incident in general, of course, and to be uh, on a homepage of a, of, a, of a major or local newspaper. And then there's liability. You know, there's, there's two cases in California, uh, resident, resident fatal incidents, one ended up with $1.2 million um, loss. Uh, you know, uh, that was the verdict. And then another one was $1.9 million. So now, and, and by the way, these two reportedly occurred in the same chain. So now we're talking about $3.1 million. So I'm saying, can we dedicate a fraction of that 
towards staffing and, and specialized training and prevent a trauma and, and, and tragedy and devastation for the family. In our film, Fighting for Dignity, that um, you know, folks can access it, uh, uh, rent it or buy it on Terra Nova, Terra Nova Films. We interviewed uh, three family members that were imp- had their loved ones uh, injured um, psychologically, sexually, and physically uh, severely by in those during those incidents. Because we wanted to move, you know, to write an article is one thing, to share statistics is nothing. Even to write a book is one thing. But to actually sit down and listen to those family members and the, the far-reaching, devastating impact on them when they were so shocked to learn that their loved ones were injured so badly in those incidents, um, maybe that will resonate with, uh, with certain uh, uh, providers, with owners, um, better to be proactive and preventative and anticipatory, you know, to use an anticipatory care approach uh, than to um, end up having a severe injury or death uh, and then deal with that. So that would be a message uh, for owners and administrators of, of those care homes. Yeah, I guess I would like to add too that I think and I think everybody thinks they're doing this, that they are, that their communities are welcoming, engaging, and fun. But I don't think that they ever really survey that in terms of, you know, and especially in this time of staff shortage, do the staff feel that way? Or is it just a task? You know, we get into these routines where what what was once fun because of micromanaging is is now high pressure and when we do that it changes the whole interaction and I, I think that that has harmed us on multiple levels in terms of delivery of service and so you know using those words and having that as a mission is one thing but we have to dive deeper and not just have it look pretty on an ad Mm -hmm. and having an engaging um, fun place where people feel that they're part of a community, but actually talk to people and see how we can improve because that's where your ideas are going to come from um, to improve. You shouldn't be scared of hearing the negative because that's the only way you can address it is knowing about it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so part of it, part of that is removing that. Well, well, I, 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 I have to jump in and forgot, mm-hmm. forget uh, to, sh- to say that I forgot to mention one of the biggest and most important pieces, which is personally, personal meaning, personally meaningful engagement. Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest secrets in the prevention of these episodes, not only about bringing joy in the moment, but also when you, when residents, so I followed 12 residents with dementia for 10 months. And when with the highest level of distressing behavioral expressions, we selected them very carefully for two and a half months. We were just screening and screening until we identified the 12 with the highest level of behavioral expressions, according to many staff members. And when they were bored on their own, we're not doing nothing, a, a whole host of problems occur, including those episodes. And when they're the same 12 individuals were engaged in music therapy, with pets that are trained, with uh, the toddlers that walked in, uh, aromatherapy, you know, dan- uh, movement and dance, you know, being out in the, in the beautiful garden, just sitting and looking at the birds. And so 
you know, when they were engaged, you saw a dramatic reduction of those episodes. So I would say, if you're an owner of a long-term care home, invest in your recreational therapy department, whatever you call it, life enrichment, uh, invest in it and get the best director of recreation therapies that you can get, train them, train, get the best people you can pay them well, support them. There's a lot of turnover in that sector. And when you do it, you can not only bring joy and meaning and purpose and enable people with the mental feel useful, you will guarantee reduce the vast majority of those episodes in the public spaces of the care. You still need to deal with a lot of between roommates and bathrooms and all we talked about earlier, uh, but you will reduce, you will really make an impact there beyond giving joy and to enable people to thrive and have meaning and purpose in their lives. So I had to kind of share and add that piece. No, that's good. And the other thing I would add to with the activities in life enrichment is you have to respect them. They are not very well respected in the industry. They are looked as less than uh, from a director level. And yet they are one of the most impactful um, positions in your community. And that needs to be raised and changed. And there's so much you can learn from them because they they spend the most time with people. So their, their insights are so great. Um, but again, we could talk forever. I want, I want to wrap this up. And again, um, Alan, just thank you for your time. Um, again, his book is called Understanding and Preventing Harmful Interactions Between Residents uh, with Dementia. The Health Professionals Press uh, website, will put that down for you where you can get the book if you want to um, visit uh, Alan's website. You can go to <clears throat> dementiabehaviorconsulting.com. That's dementiabehaviorconsulting.com. And if you'd like to reach out to him uh, via email, it's uh, Alan Caspi, E I L O N C A S P I at gmail.com. Again, thank you for the great work you're doing. And it's just such an honor to call you a friend and a colleague. And again, I'm just thrilled um, that you've got this all pulled together. Uh, thank you, Lori. Uh, I, I would say uh, thank you so much for inviting me to do it today. It's been a just pleasure as always. We've been working together for years. And uh, I would just leave the viewers with one thought you know, please, please, please remember, these are people, individuals living with a serious brain disease who are doing their best to cope with a situation that could be distressing, frightening, and frustrating. So they're really, really doing their best. And when you look at the interaction, you will see that there's a tremendous opportunity for prevention for enhancing their dignity, their personhood, their identity, and their safety. So thank you so much uh, for, for joining us today. And, and thank you, Laurie, for all the incredible work that you're doing over the years. Uh, you've been really leading the way and giving true voice to uh, people living with dementia. And I'm so grateful for what you've, doing, you've been doing for, for so many years. So thank you so much too. Right. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this uh, program. Please like, click and share. Um, I think there was a lot of gems in here. And again, don't forget to run out and order that book, Understanding and Preventing Harmful Interactions Between Residents with Dementia. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lori. Take care. 
Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.